0: Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with The Oddfellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. This episode, we'll be reading the story of a masterpiece, an artist's romance, by Agnes crozier Herbertson, which was first published in The People's Friend in 1905. This story will be read for us by Friend Features Editor Alex dempster Corlett
1: The night was dark, the poet had written, and the clouds were purple. Then my beloved let fall her hair, and lo! the dawn. The artist read the words, then he closed the book and pushed it back from him. He brushed his hair back from his brows with an absent gesture, and then he rose and began to pace up and down the room. The sunlight fell upon his face. It was rapt, with the rapture of a new inspiration, but about the fine brow and the weary eyes were lines of care. The floor gave back the sound of his light steps. They were eager and fitful, and but the fitfulness and the eagerness were not those of youth. The artist's form was slight and sensitive, but the shoulders were bowed a little, and the slightness of the form was worn to emaciation. When he smiled, pain lurked about his eyes, and the glance of the eyes was always absent. It was the glance of one who lived in a world of dreams, of one who had crept into it shuddering, and who still feared contact with aught in the world without. Their expression was gentle, but strangely untender. All in all, the eyes were those of the artist who has no thought of aught but his work. The room in which the man paced was a bare and poverty-stricken one. Pictures, pictures stood everywhere, but these formed the bulk of its furniture. No carpet was upon the floor, and in one corner of the room stood a shabby couch, which also served, obviously, for a bed. The few chairs in the room were of plain wood and they were laden with untidy heaps of draperies. The fire was out. The sunlight struck upon the dead ashes of it. The windows of the room were smeared and dirty. In one corner lay a heap of half-worn shoes. Of all this, the artist saw nothing. He paused suddenly before the empty grate and held out two thin hands and shivered. Then he turned suddenly away. It should work out, he muttered in his beard. But only the hair must be seen, only the hair. He went out into the street. The idea with which the poet had inspired him grew upon him. The idea of a picture of the hidden face of a girl and a mass of hair, of beautiful hair. His pace unconsciously quickened and into his thin cheeks crept a vivid crimson stain. When the end of the street was reached, He found it impossible to take the turning, which was a part of his daily walk, and to proceed. He turned sharply about and went home. The servant girl was scrubbing the studio floor and turned to stare, open-mouthed, when he entered. He crossed to his easel and stood there, his nervous hand twitching, meditating. His peaked chin, with its pointed beard, seemed cruelly sharp and thin where the sunlight touched it. Marianne noticed that one of his boots was burst on one side. She dropped her scrubbing brush with a clatter, and the artist startled. Please be careful, he said irritably and without turning round. He shifted his position a little and went on with his thoughts. The girl pursued her task and finished it. The artist's lodger was her idol. She shook at the sound of his quick footfall and trembled when he was in the room. He did not know how much more squalid the room would have been but for the surreptitious ministrations of hers, which were not among the tasks set to her by her mistress, and which would have brought a scolding in their wake had they been discovered. She shook now, but she finished her task. Then she moved toward the door with her pail in one hand, but her eyes were fixed on the artist's face and not on the way before her. The corner of a chair jutted out at her side, it caught her sharply. She staggered and then fell. Crash. Over went the bucket. The dirty water swirled over the clean boards. Mary Ann raised herself. She looked and she burst into tears. Philip Wayne had turned with a sharp exclamation at the first clatter of her fall. He stood now, suddenly silent, transfixed. Into his eyes pierced a sudden light. He was regardless of the disaster, Of the flood at his feet, of the girl's tears. His gaze was fixed upon her hair. He had fallen as she fell and lay, a rolling mass of gold upon her shoulders. As she stooped now in a wild attempt to stem the flood which ran over the floor, it loosened itself further and fell in great shining clusters about her face. In an instant it would touch the floor. The artist caught the girl's shoulder involuntarily and pulled her upright. Then he looked away, his hand still upon her shoulder and his mind quite unconscious of her wondering stare. His one thought was he had found what he wanted. He thought of nothing else. The girl's half-bending attitude, the shimmering flood of hair, these flashed again before his rapt eyes. His fingers twitched, aching to begin, and his soul yearned after the expression of the dream that shook him he roused himself impatiently and brought his wandering gaze to Mary Ann's face. He knew very well the type of features he might expect to find there, and he found it. Her nose might have been worse, perhaps, but it was very bad. Her mouth was plebeian, if kindly, and her eyes were the eyes of any London serving maid of her class. Her brow was narrow and overhung her eyes, and her chin was nondescript. "'although a touch of wistfulness lay in the turn of it. "'And round and about this face hung that halo of hair. "'Girl, you have beautiful hair,' he said to her abruptly. "'You must let me paint it.' "'Yes, sir,' said Marianne, trembling. "'He began to arrange ways and means, "'and Marianne fastened up what she now felt "'to be her one glory and pride, "'since he thought it beautiful.' and dried the floor with a dirty cloth while he talked. She stipulated only that he should arrange with the missus. Then she went trembling away. The artist interviewed the missus with a shudder, and feeling himself to be undergoing much for art's sake. Then the work began. Philip Wayne was agreeably disappointed in Marianne as a model. He had expected and dreaded a host of ignorant questions, a pert interest in the progress of the picture, and a vulgar inability to keep still. He found none of these things. Marianne could sit still, and would have sat on until she dropped at his feet, had she been called upon to do so. Her interest in the picture was great, but her awe of the artist was greater. It never occurred to her to question him. To have stood up in church and questioned the preacher would have appeared to her as likely a proceeding. Moreover, she was too happy for speech. To sit there with his eyes upon her was enough. Life, she felt, could offer her no greater bliss. The days passed on and the picture grew. The artist became more wrapped up in it day by day and day by day became less conscious of the existence of the world and of outer things. This was not the first creation in which he had become absorbed, but his absorption had never been as deep as now. The bare studio was his world and the completion of the painting, the one aim of his existence. He never thought of Anne, and he never forgot her beautiful hair. The days passed. Once came an interruption. It was only that. Anne broke her long silence. Her eyes were red with weeping. The gent downstairs, he has asked me to sit for him, she said. And the missus says I must. She hung her head. Intuitively, she knew he would be angry. She had not dreamt of such a pallor, such a passion of anger as passed over his face at her words. He pushed aside his brushes. You shall not sit for him, he said coldly. I found you. You are mine. You shall not sit for him. Her heart throbbed until she could hear naught else in the world. The missus says, she faltered after a while. But the artist was not listening he left the room in search of the landlady. She shall not sit for him. My picture, my picture. He could say naught else. The words whistled between his shut teeth. But when the matter was settled, he was not his ease. Work did not go well with him that morning. His mind strayed and his hand seemed to have lost its cunning. He looked at the beautiful hair with unseeing eyes. His fingers played absently upon the handle of his brush, beating out the refrain which ran in his mind. What one has wanted, another will want. What one has lost, another will gain. The words beat through and through his brain. When he dismissed Marianne, it was with a curt nod, which sent her away with tears in her eyes. Philip Wayne slept ill that night, but with dawn came an answer to the problem. When Marianne appeared later with his breakfast, he greeted her strangely. Marianne's heart told her the eagerness was not for her, but she blushed. And her yes, sir, was distinct if it faltered with the violence of the thrill that shook her. She could think of no greater happiness, no greater glory, no fairer heaven than to be his wife. That he might love her one day was an expectation which never entered into her head. She did not think of love from him to her. He would make her the most blessed woman on earth, his wife. That was enough. The painting of the picture went on. Artist and model were married, and it went on still. There was no change in attitude of model or artist. Neither of them had thought of any change. When the landlady gave the girl notice, Marianne was surprised. She had expected to go on as usual with her duties, but she could sit the longer, she decided, as things were. The picture, the artist declared, would make him famous. True, he had said this before, and of other pictures. But of that Marianne neither knew nor cared anything, and he had not before made the assertion with such fervour as that with which he made it now. He felt himself to be nearing the completion of the work, the work of his lifetime, the work by which he was to rise or fall. A fever seized him, a strange glamour caught him in its clutches. He worked on as one possessed. The picture was a striking one, but its most striking feature was a flood, a glory of hair of pure gold. Upon this, the artist laboured. It was always before his eyes, day and night. All the world was lost in the blaze of yellow light. Marianne watched and wondered and waited until her wondering and waiting were put to flight by the appearance of an old problem, the weary problem of how to make two wide-open ends meet. I must turn my hand to something," thought she cheerfully, and with the philosophy of the class in which most women, after marriage, have to remain breadwinners. She found work and wrought hard at it, and her only fear was that he should discover what she had done and be displeased. But he did not notice her absences, for she was always there when he wanted her, and he was deep in his work. When Marianne made the dreary discovery that what had kept one would not keep two he knew nothing of it. Bread was put before him, and he ate. It did not occur to him to ask from whence it had come. His thoughts were of fame and of the glory of golden hair. Had he been left to feel the pangs of hunger, he would have taken his brush and have painted one of the detested pot boilers which would have kept him alive. Perhaps the great work would have suffered. Perhaps not. He was not allowed to feel the pangs of hunger and Marianne's cheek grew wan and white while she did the work of two. One day she was detained at her work, and kept him waiting a moment or two. The delay fretted him, and she found him in a fever of impatience, yearning to be at work. "'Where have you been? I have been wanting you. This is your time to sit to me!' he cried. She made an evasive reply, and he was pacified, becoming lost in the glamour of his inspiration. After that morning, she was fearful of discovery. She worked less and starved herself, but she said nothing. His plate was always full, and her tongue was eager only to remind him to empty it. She was quiet, still and shy, and happy. Oh, wonderfully happy. She was crowning her life with its highest bliss, for she was laying it down for him. Was she not his wife? Then came a day when the great world bowed down to her idol, even as she bowed, and her heart almost broke under its weight of joy. The picture was finished, it was approved, it was applauded. The country discovered a genius in its midst. It fetched the genius from his garret and put him in a palace, and with him it fetched his wife. Success had come to him in the midday of his life. It comes so, but seldom the young it is who wins success it is so easy to grow too old to succeed the old days in the garrets were over marianne found herself a very princess but she was quiet and shy and wonderfully happy still perhaps that was why she was not quite a failure as the great artist's wife in the eyes of the world the artist was not changed for he was above all things an artist he worked on and in his new work appeared again the glory which had made him famous, the glory of a woman's hair. How thin and wan the face was which it hid, he did not notice. He was buried in his work. Then came a day when she was ill, and could not sit for him, and his world seemed to fall about his ears. Another day followed, and speedily, and the great physician told him his wife was dead. The great physician was touched by the anguish on his face. Yes, it seems hard, he said gently. To come in the first hour of success, very hard. She must have suffered much, very much. You were poor once, I think. It has told on her. The artist hardly seemed to be listening. Yes, she was poor when I married her, he said, very poor. Then he became silent. When the doctor was gone, he went up to his wife's bedroom and stood there, like a statue beside the bed. His face was hardly less white than the face which lay there, but he was not looking at the face. He stood there for many moments. Then he went forward and pulled up the blind, which had been drawn down. The glory of the summer sun struck across the room and fell in a wide flash upon the bed. It fell upon the golden glory which lay there, enshrouding the pale, dead face. The artist went quietly away. He brought to the room an easel, brushes, an armful of the contents of the studio. Then he went away and returned with a picture, which was lacking only the last few master touches, and set it in the right light. Then he propped up the slender form upon the bed. He tossed the golden hair into a dazzling, bewildering brilliance, and tangled it about the half-hidden face. He made shadows about it. This was not dawn, but sunset. He lifted his brushes and began to paint.
0: The Power of Friendship when Wendy lost her husband of 54 years, she was at a loose end. Keen to keep socialising, the 76-year-old from Berkshire came across an advert for an odd fellow's coffee morning and decided to go along. Nearby, 71-year-old Cathy had recently retired and was looking for new ways to spend her free time when she spotted the same advert. The nervous pair met outside the event and struck up a conversation, and the rest is history. Now they're both members of the Oddfellows and regularly spend time together both inside and outside the group. And they even encourage others to sign up too. Normally, Oddfellows members can enjoy regular social events such as craft sessions, lunches out, guest talks and excursions. Right now though, there's a wide range of online events to enjoy from the comfort of your own home. Just visit oddfellows.co.uk or call 0800 028 028. One eight one zero today for a free information pack. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. That was the story of a masterpiece an artist's romance by Agnes Grosier Herbertson, ably narrated by the People's Friend features editor Alex Dempster corlett who joins me now. Uh hello Alex. Hello. Alongside Mary from the features team also. Hello Mary. Hello Ian. And uh, also archive manager at DC Thompson, David Powell. Hello David. Hi Ian, hi everyone. So, Alex, I'm going to come to you first. Um mm. as you very ably narrated what I would say was was probably quite a difficult story to read. Mm. What did you think about I don't want to start off with the romance but I have a whole big thing planned about the word romance in the story <laughs> we will, we will come to this later but uh what were your thoughts uh, when you sat down to read it for us
1: um it's it struck me it was it was a difficult it wasn't a particularly difficult story to read actually it was um quite stark I think um being very familiar with modern friend fiction and the warmth and the feel good factor that we normally go for this you were expecting it to arrive at some point in the story, the romance, and it never really did. <laughs> it never did. It uh, it was callous. It was it was hard going, and it and it didn't really get any better as it went on. I think I was like I said, I was expecting it to. It never quite. Um, it never quite turned around. It was it was it was tough going. It really was the 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 artist that sort of sense of separation the artist put between the woman that was his muse. Who he eventually married. Uh, and her hair, which was basically what he was obsessed with, um, was really was really quite extreme. And I think, as I read it before, and even when I was reading it out over the mic, um, it still kind of shocked me with how how blunt it was, how brutal it was. It was a uh, it was a, it was a sad story. I wasn't expecting that. It was sadder It was a sad story.
2: In fact, I think it's about halfway down before um, she even gets a name. She gets a name before him. I thought was really interesting. You didn't find out his name was Philip until about three quarters of the way through, I think. Yeah, that's true. That's
1: true. And the names don't even play that big a role, do they? You're not really left with any sense of that because they don't really interact with any of the people. There is just this kind of one-dimensional side to them. um, And you don't really see anything from the point of view of the artist. It's really just her sacrifice and uh, adoration uh, all the way through, which obviously um, increases and increases until eventually she passes away from starvation at the end. Spoilers. Sorry. Oh, wait, no, they've already heard it. (laughs) Never
0: mind. Um, I think actually the, the only other characters that are in it, there's the, the Mrs. Um, which is the landlady and, Mm. uh, the, the great physician, um, who is the doctor who turns up to, to give him the bad news. Mm, mm. Uh, So they are, the two of them are the only named characters. And as David says, kind of, you don't really find out their names. You've also got the rival artist as well. Oh, that's true. Yes. He doesn't really get much of a feature. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if that means then that the characters aren't really very important. Um, I I mean, obviously it seems to me a bit like the, the woman isn't very important in the, in the (laughs) way that she's treated in the story, but maybe it's the characters are less important than an idea that it's trying to put across.
2: Um, You'll have to tell me if I'm reaching here. No, I think you're right there. You could actually just take these names out completely and just have it as the maid and the artist. And it wouldn't make any real difference. The only thing that would change would be she'd stop being the maid and become the wife.
3: Mm. You don't really get any sense of their backgrounds really because you you know that the artist lives in poverty as well as the girl, but you don't really know what their circumstances are and how they've kind of come... To live the lives that they're in so like you say they're kind of distance from the story like they don't really seem necessarily that they are important as people they just happen to play the role in the story that they do
2: mm-hmm. I wasn't 100 percent sure if he was really that poor um, he's kind of living this kind of bohemian artist lifestyle in a garret mm. you know I mean you could almost set this in Paris to be honest um, um living that kind of like romantic ideal and he's probably just really tight with his cash is what i thought um and he's living in this thing he's living in a service department where he's got a maid that comes in and does stuff then there's the landlady yeah um and so i wasn't thought, so i thought in some ways they were on two different levels of poverty she's proper kind of like she needs to work to live yeah. and he's having this kind of like artistic ideal Except he's not making any major money.
1: <laughs> it almost makes him more callous in a sense because you there's a there's a line somewhere in the towards the end of the story I think which describes his um his run of the mill kind of pot boilers. I think it refers to the the painting that he obviously does uh, to to earn a sort of day to day living. So he clearly is producing some sort of commercial art that is doing well enough to earn him a living and and a service department, as David says, but um he's. I don't know, it's just a raging egotist that's completely unaware of his um, of his wife's suffering through the later part of it when he clearly does have the means because he clearly is earning a living from other other content that he's producing. Um, and he's not really, really kind of <laughs> sharing the wealth there. I mean, if you say one thing about it, it's not twee, is it? This, this story certainly isn't too sweet by any means.
2: Definitely not. I, I The first time I read it through... Um, I, I was actually in shock by the time I got to the end of it. I I kind of felt really angry, and I had to put walk away from it. I was like, this is horrid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then I deliberately didn't read it again until I heard you speak it, Alex, mm. um, because I wanted to kind of hear it and get somebody else's in interpretation. And I started to see some more humanity in it on the second time through, but it was still struggling. Mm. <laughs> I still didn't come away particularly liking either of the characters actually.
1: No, and you get to yeah. that moment at the end when she has passed away and he just he he just it, it's really quite shocking, but he just gathers up his equipment um and goes upstairs and just paints another picture um while she's lying uh dead on the bed, which is uh kind of took me by surprise, really. That was that was that was particularly shocking at the end. That was when he really, kind of really hammered home the point that maybe she really was Nothing to him other than this glorious head of hair, and that was that was quite hard to take. I thought quite hard to swallow.
2: Yeah, that's what annoyed me. He never comes across as seeing her as a human being. Mm. Um, I mean, the bit that got me was when he kind of he goes over to look at her for the first time, and there's that horrible line. He's basically it's like choosing a horse at the fair. Mm. It's just like her nose is bad, or I can't remember what it was. Oh, uh, she has a plebeian chin. Yeah, her (laughs) nose might have been worse, perhaps, but it was very bad. Her mouth was plebeian if kindly, her eyes were the eyes of any London serving maid of her class. And it's not like, okay, yeah, we, we, we're we learning something about her, but we're also learning more about how he just views her as yeah. being, well, actually, you're nothing special, but your hair is amazing. <laughs>
0: I have to say that listening to the, the narration, um, I heard Alex when I was editing this together. I heard Alex use the word "hair" so many times that it started to get a bit weird. <laughs> just, just made me feel a little uncomfortable. I thought I would share that with everyone.
1: It was the word. There's a word in there. As the as the um, reader of the story, I have to say there's one word in there, and it actually popped up in the other story that I read as well, which was "aught," which is obviously "ought." Um, I personally struggled with. Saying that in a way that distinguished it as being, oh, ought, <laughs> rather <laughs> than ought, um, it's an awkward word. Um, I, I have to I have to confess, that was probably, under dislikes, that was the top of my list, having to say ought in a way that made it clear that it wasn't.
2: Yeah, it's not a common word we use nowadays, is it? It's kind of fallen no. out of favour. And So, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, not much of this language feels antiquated, but some of the sentence structure does feel a bit, you know, of its time. So, Mari, I have a challenge for you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you to pick out your favourite bit
0: of the story.
3: Okay. It was actually, yeah, it was it was quite sad. Like Alex said, it's kind of hard to um, to find <laughs> find a favourite bit. That's quite a tough question. Um, I think, I mean, I think specifically I liked her character, although I was kind of in two minds about her because I think in some parts she seems quite like a kind of tough, tough character. The fact that she kind of just gets on with, Kind of providing for him and doing her work, and she doesn't even expect any kind of thanks for it, and she just gets on with it. So she does seem almost brave, but then at the same time, she does kind of enable him. Um, there's a line where she says, uh, "She was crowning her life with its highest bliss, for she was laying it down for him. Was she not his wife?" So you kind of, I almost, I wanted to like her and be on her side, but then at some points, you think, actually, I don't know why is she just enabling him and allowing him to be really kind of in his own little bubble and totally self-absorbed. So you almost kind of wish that she would stand up to him.
0: Absolutely. I think he was requiring a good standing up to, to be perfectly honest with (laughs) you. Definitely. I I discovered this line. um, It's towards the end of the story, and he's talking about uh, the painting making him famous. And he said, actually, it's roughly the middle of the story, I think. And it says, uh, the picture the artist declared would make him famous. True, he had said this before and of other pictures. Uh, and that made me, that kind of gave me a bit of an insight into his character. Like he's got delusions of grandeur, mm. even, even the title of it being uh, the story of a masterpiece sort of made me feel like he is completely, as we've been talking about, kind of divest, divested from reality. He thinks that this is a masterpiece, but actually might not be at all. He might just be a little bit caught up in his own legend, a legend in his own lunchtime, as my parents would say.
1: I I mean, I was, when I was preparing for this i was i did a little bit of research on um kind of artist muses and people like picasso and rembrandt and klimt and stuff like that i mean these guys um they're not all have the same mentality i mean they all thought they were their art was above and beyond and and that they must continue it um to the detriment of their health or their families concern was was a higher calling that they were destined to i think kind of delusions of grandeur were necessary to be a <laughs> a painter i didn't i didn't find that i'm just saying i didn't find that kind of out of key with the the the, the, the nature of the story that we were talking that we might be talking about some parisian um or dutch or european artist um who might believe that he was better than he was but then eventually does turn out a masterpiece it seemed actually quite a chime quite true i think with a of a lot of the stories we know about sort of turn of the century painters
2: yeah it's a very i thought it's a very 19th century idea of romance in the terms of the romantic movement as opposed to romance as in you know kind of love etc yeah um that you kind of strive and you're always striving to do your best work and hope that the next one's the one that's going to make you the cash and then make it easier. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I w- like Alex, I wasn't massively surprised by that drive and I could see what was driving him. What I could never get was what was driving her. Mm. She's got this awe of him before he has his masterpiece. But I mean, the way he's described and, um, He's not put out as an attractive man, either physically or even in the way that his temperament is. So I'm wondering what it is that is actually driving her that makes her so much want to be his wife. Um, I just found that really odd. I couldn't see what what was driving her, basically.
3: I mean, right at the start, she says that she admires him even before... He kind of speaks to her she just seems to view him as this kind of idol but like you say there's absolutely no basis for that yeah
2: because he's not done his masterpiece by this point he's just yep. doing pot boilers mm, so,
1: <laughs> in a sense that's what I liked about the story was that it, it didn't it didn't it did ring true like we obviously we'll go on to talk about the, the the next one the robbers but um this felt like unlike that one this felt like it could have been it could have been a very real thing it, it it was it was it wasn't it was quite callous it was quite tough but I I did actually find it fairly believable. Um at the end of the day it didn't ring it didn't ring untrue, I think.
0: What a what a terribly pessimistic outlook on life you have. <laughs> I think it's just like
2: um I think if you it, anything that's kind of looking at well I mean, to me I read this as a 19th century piece as opposed to an earlier 20th century and if you look in the world of music you look in the world of art you mm. get these kind of slightly um so intense um, artists, be it kind of Beethoven or mm. Berlioz or whoever it is. Um, I've got a more music background than an art background. Um, you know, you see this in things like Symphony Fantastique in the early Romantic period, about 19, 1830, this kind of idea of the mortal beloved, this muse that drives them, and that they're just completely besotted by their art the, to the consequence of everybody else. Mm, mm. Um, even their death, um, there's still art to be made in it. You, uh, David, you found a picture of
0: um, Ms. Herbertson, didn't you, in the in the volume?
2: Yeah, I did a bit of research into Agnes because she wasn't a, a, um, a, a name that meant much to me. Um, I mean, she was born in 1873-ish, um, it's a bit unclear, in Christiana in Norway. Um, her dad was a Glaswegian... Who worked in shipping and was sent to various offices. So she was born there. She had siblings born in France, and then um, the rest of the family were born in Glasgow. Um, And then, by she lived in Glasgow until the 1880s before where the family uh, up to moved to St Albans. And so she was privately educated in in Croydon. Um, And in she seems to have started writing for the Friend in about um, 1895. Um, when she's only about 20, 25, and she's writing um, children's stories. She's writing uh, fairy tales, which I thought was really interesting. Um, And she actually published six adult novels in her life, um, the first one um, being in 1897. Um, So this is, from looking at short stories, this looks like actually quite an early one for her in 1905. Um, but she writes for The Friend right through to the 1930s um, and she's published in the Annie S. Swan annuals, which is the precursor of the People's Friend annual. Um, and so she's obviously of some standing and she's publishing widely. She's selling her stories to all sorts of newspapers around England and the and the UK, um, including, um, you know, our own newspapers and magazines and, the, you know, like People's Friend. So she's prolific, but she's predominantly known as a children's author, which I find really interesting given how, adult this story is that's grim
0: and in the in the sense of in the fairy tale sense of the brothers grim as well as actually (laughs) yeah no (laughs) i I
2: did think that that, that i wondered if there's a you know if if she's if that's where she specialized in her early time is she kind of got a little bit in a dark place um (laughs) because i actually went and read another of her stories that was published in a magazine called the truth in the 1920s which is quite similar to this one in some ways um about two men um Obviously, there's not a romance there, but they're uh, they're two friends, elderly friends that meet up together in later life, and they end up in rather tragic circumstances. And I won't go into it, but I could see that the same kind of themes and morals and you know were there, um, and it was fascinating. But as you say, um, yeah, I managed to find a picture of it from 1900, an engraving in uh, in the newspaper actually, where they're promoting a couple of people's friends uh, authors. Uh, and so the, um, somebody's drawn her and her picture appears in the newspaper, um, along with a review of her work where they basically say, yes, she's beloved by children and adults. So she's popular even in her early 20s. So she's she's good at what she does. Um, but the but to actually have your picture in the newspaper at that point as a drawing is pretty special. It was only really left for kind of senior politicians, royalty, and big state events that would normally have something like that. Photography obviously just wasn't in newspapers that prolific until much later in the early 20th century. Um, so to actually have a really nice portrait of her is, is quite special.
0: Yeah, I think that definitely
2: says something about her. I mean, I, I
0: don't think that this is a poorly written story in a, in a technical sense. Um, I think all of my objections to it if you can call them that are perhaps from reading the stories that we publish in the friend today Mm. and kind of starting at the the beginning and seeing the word romance and then getting to the end and thinking
2: i miss it (laughs) i think it's a different kind of romance it's not a romantic love and i think that's the difference isn't it she's looking well i don't think she's even looking for romantic love but it's the romance of the artist not yeah. An artist's romance with somebody yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know that apostrophe is really important. Yeah. And it's it's this nineteenth-century romantic ideal of passion and being besotted by something. It just happens to be the thing that he's besotted by is not really her as a person, but her as a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> I was
1: kind of left wondering, really, what he was trying to say a little bit because um, I did, I was wondering if she'd actually based this on some artists that may have been active around the time that she was writing. And I, I couldn't find anything really comparable. Um, and it may just be my my ignorance or I didn't spend enough time looking. But if you look at a lot of the muses, even if they weren't necessarily the wives, and quite often they were, it wasn't just a straightforward husband-wife relationship, even if they were mistresses or random ladies off the street, there was usually, the artists were usually not it wasn't just as uh sort of mechanical as this they weren't just obsessed with the hair with the nose there were always these great love affairs and and, and much more sort of tempestuous relationships but, but there was a real human connection between them and this is i, I couldn't find a comparable true story of an artist who is who is who was purely obsessed um with a, a particular characteristic of of his muse to the point of not really noticing that she's dead. (laughs) So I, I, I don't know. I I don't really know what she was trying to say. She wasn't, she wasn't obviously drawing comparisons with anybody, um, active around her time or or within the immediate past. Um, that's what, like, we're all a bit confused about the, the definition of romance in this story, but that's what I was kind of scratching my head about is it's not drawn from, it's not drawn from another story. Um, what's, um, what was she angry about upset <laughs> <That's laughs> about something
2: <Clearly laughs> no actually i I'm, I might have an answer to that Alex. Um, <laughs> um I was looking at the I was looking at it in the magazine so i, I went and got out our um our volume of it and looked at the original source material hmm. as it were and um you know it's it's a it's a it's a page and a column so you know it, it's it's a substantial short story which is not unusual for the friend at this point um and the final column of the story. Is you know is, is as we've we've heard, but directly underneath it, um, there's two additional items. There is a quote from John Ruskin, which I'll read to you. There is no such thing as a just or real cheapness, but all things have their necessary price, and you can no more obtain them for less than the price than you can alter the course of the earth. When you obtain anything yourself for half price, someone else must always have paid the other half. Mm. And I just, when I read that, I thought, ooh, was that the launch pad for the story or is that just something that's come to the editor and he's put it in to fill some space and is basically saying, you know, she's given, you know, in order to allow him have his full portion, she's given her half portion and more and has paid the ultimate price for it. It's then followed by a really cheery advert for People's Friend Biscuits, which you can buy from <laughs> your grocer. Um, just to lighten the mood a little yeah. And you'd need them well, I thought that. the Ruskin quote was interesting.
1: Um, yeah, I don't know. That is, yeah, uh, that is interesting. It's um, That it was her, yeah, that it was her sacrifice that maybe made it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. If there is a relevance to that. You're right. It's an interesting quote to just pop in at the end of a story like that. That's
2: for sure. As an archivist, it's one of the things that makes me sad is that the People's Friend Archive for this period and we don't have the editorial correspondence because it would be fantastic to mm. see what was going on between the author and the editors at this point and whether they commission this or whether she's come up with it um to see you know and what what the driver for it is because um something i was going to ask you guys was is this something that you would publish now no <laughs> I don't think <laughs> so. <laughs> I didn't think it would be, somehow. I wouldn't want to put words in the mouth
1: of the fiction team, but I'm pretty sure this would not pass the uh, uplifting yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, And yeah.
0: In the year that we were publishing a, a book called The Feel Good Special, I expect that the story would not make the cut. No, but it is um,
2: there is a moral dimension to it about sacrifice and you know, flawed characters. To me, uh, but while they're both flawed characters, there is an element of her sacrifice, his complete obliviousness to her sacrifice, um, which is a, a very kind of moralistic that, uh, approach, maybe. Um, and I was wondering, you know, in the at the time when the this was being published in the friend um the friend was there to kind of have a an an, a self improvement element to it Mm. and maybe this is just telling people to stop being quite so selfish to the other people around them um so you know it, it was in that kind of kin i mean i think dc thompson um soon after this published other um fiction magazines um such as red star weekly um Secrets and Flame, where this would feel much more akin, find a much better home than maybe the people's Mm. friend. Mm. Did you say there was a magazine called Secrets and Flame? Well, it was Flames, and there was a separate magazine called Secrets, and the two ultimately merged to become Secrets and Flame. That <laughs> sounds like a magazine I would read. Uh, and they were they were part of a kind of um, a publication series, which w- n- this wasn't a title that DC Thompson gave it, but in the publishing world and the publishing um, academia, they referred to the Blood and Thunder wow. um, publications, so they tend to be a bit more on the Penny Dreadful side of things, but have a moral tone and it's where you would publish maybe there'd be a murder or there'd be kind of infidelities or something like that but it would always have a a happy ending so you know no one would go unpunished if they'd done something bad so this feels like this is this would feel more comfortable to me in one of those publications than the people's
0: friend put it that way i'm feeling a future (laughs) podcast episode on some of this blood and thunder stuff
1: (laughs) do we not think that if the um most stories that obviously try and emphasise the moral at the end of it do so by giving the uh, protagonist antagonist So their comeuppance. Basically, he does not suffer for this at all.
2: Well, he uses it as, he uses it as another way to cash in and do another painting, isn't it? It's just like essentially,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, that's that's the sort of the moroseness of it is at the end. It was just her who suffered, um, whilst he. Only gained really. So it's kind of, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I can see that it's quite a, I, in that sense, I think it's more of a subtle way. There may be a moral to it, but it's more subtle. You have to kind of tease that out for yourself by your sympathy for uh, the maid um, rather than the story just saying he was horrible to her and he didn't pay much attention to her or, or give her
2: any affection.
1: And as a result, he. Succeeded brilliantly in his life. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe. You, know, you don't know what
2: happens next. And maybe this was his last work yeah. and that was it. You know, His muse is gone. Or he'll go out and find another. I mean, one of the things that really struck me about this is the only reason he married her was in order to make sure that nobody else was painting her, to make sure that the guy downstairs didn't get a go. And I just found that really horrific. It was just like, no, this is, um, it's almost like he's purchased her. It's just, it's, uh, yeah, it just made me, f- one of the things that made me feel really angry about the story. It's uncomfortable. About it? him and not have any sympathy.
3: Yeah, She knew that that's what she was getting herself in for though, because it, it says that she doesn't expect, like the relationship between them doesn't change once they're married and she doesn't expect that. She just expects them to carry on as they were. He just paints her. And that's it. And I think she knew that that was what she was getting herself in for, which I think makes it, like I say, almost more confusing because you don't know how much to sympathise with her because it seems like she's got herself into this situation in a way and you kind of want her to get out of it.
2: <laughs> yeah, she kind of got what she wanted, but I mean, it's the world's least romantic proposal. There isn't even a proposal <laughs> there. Uh, it's kind of <laughs> like, it's just like, well, this is basically a way of making sure that nobody can have you. is yeah. that I'm going to take you on. It's just like, um, you know, it yeah no i I don't know about anybody else's marriage proposals, but it wasn't like that <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, I don't know but the the better half might have a different story to mind. <laughs>
0: I should say if you want um if you want to look into the cold dead eyes of the woman who wrote this story um we will we'll put that illustration or the the um picture of um Ms Herbertson on our social channels, and you can have a look
1: she she doesn't look happy
2: she looks quite austere <laughs> she looks quite austere to me. She's doing that stirring into the middle distance thing. Yeah, it's supposed to take your soul or something, isn't it? <laughs> In 1900, it looks like the Evening Telegraph took her soul then. <laughs> like, or oh, the artist of the Evening Telegraph. That is unfortunate uh, and and
0: perhaps not surprising, uh, but that's probably a good place for us to end this episode. Um so it just remains for me to say thank you to uh, Mary and David for joining us for the discussion and Alex for his able narration and of course to you, the listeners, for, for tuning in. And until this wee group of friends gets together for another story, from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lights. Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We'd be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £8. And that special offer is available until the 31st of May, 2021. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, Visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Haste you back.
3: There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end and is known to its admirers as the dear old People's Friend. A charming little journal is the friend Of good things it is such a happy blend That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure The friend to friends in trouble recommend They won't be happy till they get
0: the friend